Hello and welcome to Talking New Retina. This is a new series exploring the latest news and developments in the world of retina. We'll also keep you up to date on the latest events, activities and strategy of the European Society of Retina Specialists, Uretina. I'm your host, Jonathan McRae. Before we start the podcast, just a reminder that on May 9th, there will be another Uretina debate at 8pm CEST. Join Professor Anat Lowenstein as she hosts another double debate on two hot topics in retina right now. The debates will be chaired by Professor Eric Soed, Professor Sova Siva Prasad and Professor Francesco Bandello. First, Professor Varun Chowdhury from the United States and Professor Dina Zur from Israel will debate the question, subretinal fluid, friend or foe? And after that, we'll hear from Professor Usha Chakravati from the United Kingdom and Professor Lee Jampol from the United States as they consider whether home monitoring for treating disease activity is a real breakthrough. That's on May 9th at 8pm CEST. You can register now on the Uretina website. So in this podcast, we're going to be looking at UVitis and in particular uveitic macular edema. We have a fantastic panel for you. Uh, they are Professor Baram Bodagi from Sorbonne University and PTA Hospital in Paris, France. Professor Carlos Pavezio from UCL and Moorfields Eye Hospital in the United Kingdom. And they're joined by Associate Professor Sophia Andrudi from the University of Thessaly in Greece and the University Hospital of Larissa. Uh, you're all very welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Looking forward to hearing your insights. Baram, over to you. Thank you, Jonathan. I, and uh, hi, everyone. It's really a pleasure for us uh, three to be with you uh, in this podcast. And uh, uh, we are especially grateful to you, Redna, for giving us the opportunity to discuss a challenging issue. We selected uveitic macular edema in order to discuss with you and uh, see different opinions on how to manage and uh, diagnose macular, uveitic macular edema. So I'm very glad to, to be with uh, Carlos Pavizio and Sofia and Rudy uh, in order to share uh, some information on the new uh, developments uh, in this field uh, and in this topic. So uh, I think that uh, maybe if you agree, Carlos and Sofia, we will have a discussion just uh, on different uh, uh, questions. And, uh, of course, you, you can uh, answer uh, and we, we will discuss. And I think we, we will try to make it clear uh, for retina specialists how we can manage uh, today in 2022 uh, uveitic macular edema. So I will start by asking you, Carlos, your opinion on the incidence of uveitic macular edema uh, in your population of patients with uveitis, because usually we say it's about one third of patients with uveitis who may develop macular edema uh, someday in, during the course of the disease. What is your experience? Thank you, Baran. Yeah, I think the, the important point to make is the incidence will vary depending on the type of uveitis you have. So you can have macular edema associated with anterior uveitis. You can have macular edema with intermediate and posterior uveitis. And, and by far, the largest number of cases will be associated with the posterior diseases. So I think the, the, the figure to quote, you know, if you look at the posterior intermediate uveitis, the numbers can be quite high. You, you can have a, a significant number of patients presenting macular edema. And that's the difference between what is clinically manifest edema and what is edema that you can pick up on one of our tests. So there's a difference. Uh, probably there more, there's more subclinical edema happening that we know uh, because the patients may not come with a, a visual impact 
but when you talk about significant edema for which you need to intervene, the figures will vary. I think the quote that one third of the patients will have, I think it varies on the type. In posterior intermediate viritis, it will be higher than that. I think it will be more patients having a viritis than that. In anterior viritis, that number is likely to be lower. So it, it's very dependent on, on that aspect of the, the, the anatomical diagnosis, I think. Yeah, I, I think this is a very good point, uh, Carlos, because, uh, of course, some anterior uveitis, especially those with uh, associated with HLA-B27 uh, uveitis, may end up uh, in 10 to 20% of cases with macular edema, especially when they are not well treated uh, and when inflammation is, uh, is uh, ongoing and not uh, completely controlled then you can end up with macular edema. And it was the same with children with the JIA-associated uveitis before the biologic era. But this we, we will see this uh, with the treatment and management uh, section. Sophia, do you agree with the, this uh, interpretation and uh, uh, this incidence, uh, this uh, classification regarding the anatomic side of uh, inflammation? Is it the same experience uh, for you in Greece? Absolutely, but also it depends on the ancillary test we use to pick up the uh, uveitic edema. Uh, we use OCT and FA, and sometimes we can pick up a macular edema in OCT only or on FA only. So if we use uh, the, uh, this ancillary test, the incidence might be even higher. Also in chronic cases, the incidence is higher, about eightfold. And also in non-infectious uveitis, the incidence is still higher than infectious uveitis. And also in posterior uveitis, um, uh, diseases like uh, birdshot or uh, andamadiatis besets disease tend to have uh, a higher incidence of uh, macular edema. So you, what you say, uh, Sophia, if I understand well, is that when we have uh, a non-infectious entity, especially if it's a chronic inflammation, then you are you have more risk of macular edema. About eightfold uh, more, yes. Okay, so now uh, Carlos and Sophia, th this is uh, I think an important point. Uh, do you think that macular edema is a complication of uveitis, or is it a sign of activity, Carlos? Yeah, well, I think if we look at the aspect of the uveitis by definition, intraocular inflammation then the macular edema would become a complication of that. And, and uh, the, the issue is probably the most uh, serious complication of the disease. Of course, it gives you an indication to a large extent about disease activity, but we do see cases of edema which are persistent in spite of control of the uveitis, at least as, as far as we can see in, in our methods of assessing inflammation, we can still see persistent edema. So it may be reflecting just that the damage to the barriers has been more extensive. And, and even though the inflammation has been rescued, you still have uh, uh, the, the breakdown that allows fluid to accumulate in the tissue. So it is to a larger extent a marker of activity, uh, but it can persist in spite of control of the inflammation. But I, I would classify it more as a complication uh, and, and a, a feared complication because it's the most important reason for visual loss in our patients will be macular edema. So you are uh, in phase with the regulatory agencies, uh, Carlos, because they try to differentiate between activity, uh, which is determined by haze uh, cells and complications, and they include macular edema in, uh, in the complication uh, section. 
However, I think that, uh, as you mentioned, it's difficult to say when it becomes a complication and when it is sign of activity because most of the patients we treat uh, have macular edema and no more haze or very, very few cells uh, within the vitreous. Uh, Sophia, what do you think uh, on this point? I totally agree with Carlos. It can be, uh, it's diff- difficult to tell. Uh, but it, it can be a sign of activity and it can be a complication for uh, of chronicity, uh, a complication of the uveitis. For example, there are cases who have atrophy at the macula and still have edema on FA. So I wouldn't tell that this is an active case. It, it, it's not always easy to tell, but it can be a sign of both. Okay, good. Now, let's be as practical as possible. You have a patient coming in uh, to your clinic, uh, Carlos and uh, Sophia, a 55-year-old patient with a chronic uveitis, and you diagnose macular edema by OCT in this patient. How would you have the, your, uh, uh, your diagnostic workup? done? What do you propose uh, and how we can guide our retina colleagues uh, in order to find maybe an etiology? Can you just let us know what you are doing practically every day? Okay, well, um, I'll say that when you have macroedema, the the important thing to determine is is how, how important the inflammatory event is, how widespread it is. So an angiogram is really important because it tells you if the edema, let's say, if you have just a cystoid edema from a post-op case or from an anterior uveitis, which is very localized in the macula, is very different from edema, which is associated with diffuse leakage all over the place. So uh, it, it will change the way you approach this patient. So you'll be more aggressive and you use more uh, posterior methods of intervention because you know the inflammation is not limited. It's a, it's a much wider problem. So the angiogram is very important. And I think you have to consider edema can come from retinal source, but can also come from choroidal inflammation. So I think it's exploring the, the choroidal compartment is also important to exclude that there is active choroidal inflammation going on. That will guide you in your approach to therapy. So which types of treatment you consider in that case. So I, I think we'll be discussing that a bit more later on yeah. uh, in terms of general approach. But I, I think the uh, regardless of the etiology, of course, thinking of infectious or infectious, all that is important. Of course, you want to know the source of the inflammation, where is the problem? And and uh, uh, the, the OCT is helping you decide there is edema, but it doesn't tell you very much more. And I think an angiogram is incredibly complementary to, to give you more details about what's going on. Sophia, you, you mentioned that, of course, this uh, approach of excluding, uh, again, an infection or a masquerade before uh, going to uh, non-infectious uh, etiologies. But in your experience, if you have uh, 100 patients with macular edema, what is the distribution of etiologies? I would look, I mean, if I don't have a diagnosis, I would look for a diagnosis. If I but don't... then what you, what you in your pa- patient population of 100 with macular edema, how many have birdshot? How many have, you know, other types of... Uh... Breakdown. Okay, mostly are posterior uveitis. Uh, they can be sarcoidosis, adamadiatis, mm-hmm. which have a lot of them in Greece, intermediate uveitis. I think these are uh, the, top, the tops. Uh, okay. rarely, more, more rarely in uh, uh, not, not that common in uh, not that common in anterior uveitis. Uh, uh, it can be JIA, chronic JIA. Um, 
this is these are the top uh, the top diagnosis and i would definitely uh, i agree that i would want an angiogram in both eyes and ideally a white field angiogram uh, because I could pick up uh, details that I could not. I mean, OCT is by far the most common retina tool, but it shows us thickening. It doesn't show leakage. You can have thickening without leakage and vice versa. You can have leakage without thickening. So I would want to, to see the, the, uh, how this, these two interact. I mean, what do I have? I, if I have extensive leakage, I would want to treat aggressively. If I have peripheral ischemia, I might want to do laser or treat even more aggressively, even both eyes if I have. This is interesting. Uh, Carlos, if you have a leakage on angiogram, but no uh, macular edema on OCT, do you still consider you have macular edema? Yeah, no, I, I think so. I think what's happening in this case, especially if you have younger patients who have healthy uh, outer retina, um, you, you have to to generate cystoid changes, you have to overcome the pumping system of the retina. So if you have a system by which fluid is, is being pumped in, but it can be effectively drained out, then, then the likelihood of forming cysts is very small. So you, you find that um, you will do see many patients that have only angiographic macular edema, but lack that information on the OCT. I wouldn't say that an OCT without cysts doesn't mean the macula is not thickened. If sure. you look at the thickness map, the macula will be thickened, but doesn't have the typical um, cystoid spaces because you are moving that fluid. So what you see in the angiogram is the fluiding movement is a dynamic process, and the OCT is a static documentation of where that fluid is. Yeah. So we can maybe say that even if you have uh, uh, no macular edema on OCT, no thickening on OCT, but you have still some leakage on uh, fluorescein, then maybe you have a very good pump, but it may not last. So you need to consider those cases. And this is something, I think, an important detail. Uh, you now, can have atrophy uh, also. You can have atrophy. You can have also atrophy. That's true. So this is also something important to consider when we want to treat a patient is the functional uh, benefit we can uh, give the patient. If you have macular edema, but uh, macular atrophy, uh, then of course, treating that patient will not give him more sight. So that's really something uh, I think important to consider. Uh, Sophia, do you agree that most of our patients with macular edema have idiopathic uveitis? Idiopathic uveitis, no. So you, you find an etiology in most of your cases with macular I, edema? I, uh, I mean, if I, if I am in posterior uveitis, in most of the cases, in most of the cases, you, I try to find a diagnosis. Okay, uh, there are cases uh, that uh, I cannot find a diagnosis, but no, by far, the, by, by all means, not the majority is idiopathic uveitis. Carlos. What, do you, what is in your experience? Do you see a lot of cases with a di final diagnosis or you have uh, many patients with idiopathic macular edema? You know, the, the problem here, I think, is, is how we, we define uh, uh, our understanding of, of the etiology. I think the labeling someone intermediate uveitis doesn't say we know the etiology. Yeah. It just mm -hmm. defined an anatomical location and a behavior which leads to macular edema, but it doesn't exactly tell me why that intermediate uveitis is there. So I think the, the largest number of patients may fall into that category because of the fact that we define uh, 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 you know, phenotypes and we can classify. Like I agree that if you have a diagnosis of a birdshot, that's very obvious and we, we label that yeah. way. Uh, but there are situations when 
you see behavior of leakage, uh, which fits into a phenotype of a certain anatomical definition, but you don't necessarily know why that leakage is happening. So you, you, you end up having to call that idiopathic. So it varies. Our clinics are tertiary clinics, so we're a bit biased in terms of what we see. We yeah. do see more severe cases, and we end up seeing uh, patients who we don't find anything wrong with them in spite of all our efforts. But we also see a large number of patients with well-defined sarcoid-related uveitis, birdshot, uh, and, and MS-related uveitis. So we, we can all see that. Um, but yeah, I, I think many, many times we, we are end up saying they are idiopathic. I think it's just a, a question of how you define this this uh, diagnosis you make. Yeah. Sophia, you want to add something? Yes, yes uh, Carlos and Baram, I meant that posterior uveitis in my hands, in my cases, uh, in, in the majority I do have a diagnosis, but for inter- intermediate, as defined by the anatomic location, yes, by far it's idiopathic. Yes, I totally mm, agree with you okay. about intermediate uveitis, yes. Okay, thank you. Now, I think that we have to summarize this part of on workup, and I want to just ask you a quick question. If our retina colleagues uh, are dealing with a patient with uveitic macular edema, and you have to give them just a short list of exams to do uh, ancillary tests, what would you ask? If you have five tests to ask, what what would you ask? Uh, because in some of these cases, really the, the colleagues want to have a diagnosis and what, what would relieve them if they see that there is nothing or if you pick up a diagnosis? What would be your five uh, best uh, tests, Carlos? That's a tough question, my friend. I, I think I would say... Ultimately, the most important thing is a very good clinical examination of this. Good. Because okay. It will be the, the exclusion of a potential infectious disease because that's going to change the way you treat. So if you have a retinitis, that will make you think more likely of an infectious disease, apart, of course, from our uh, adamantias batches condition in which you see retinal infiltrate and it's inflammatory, not infectious. Um, so that is an important, very important thing. Uh, clearly, the, the uh, adjunct uh, things that we talked about, uh, OCT, angiogram, will will help you uh, in the definition of the severity of the presentation. But in terms of diagnosis, uh, it, it is by far, why do we investigate? Because we want to exclude infection or a neoplastic process most of the time. Uh, we want to make sure that those things are not there because I'm going to treat in a different way. So blood tests, do they help you make the diagnosis? Most of the times they don't. If you have a, a clinical diagnosis in your mind which suggests an infection, yes, look for syphilis, look for toxo, whatever, uh, herpes. But, but if you don't have that, an idiopathic or a uveitis that hasn't have a phenotype, which is well-defined, the blood tests are going to be very unhelpful. They might actually confuse you. They might add more problems to your differential diagnosis. So clinical examination, classify properly and consider any etiology that could be infectious in that category, exclude it, and then you can focus on managing the inflammatory problem with all the weapons that we can discuss in a moment. Okay, Carlos, so you summarized the five tests with the exclusion of infection, and of course, some of them for HLA-A29, for example, is important for for birdshot. Uh, Sarcoid tests, uh, biologic or the CT scan, uh, chest CT scan may may be helpful. And this is, I mean, I wanted just to, uh, let you say that we don't need so many tests. We don't need a long list of tests. Clinical examination is important. Imaging is important. But there are just a few tests to exclude some difficult or challenging uh, cases or obvious cases. 
Uh, Sophia. Sorry, Sophia, before you go, Baron, just some of the things you said is exactly part of that. The clinical assessment will guide you on what to request. So if you see something that looks like birdshot, the HLA-29 makes sense because we'll confirm and, and, and finalize that. If you see something that looks like sarcoid or TB, then, you have, of course, you have to go and, check and look for chest CTs and all that. So I, I think it is, again, uh, really, guys, a good clinical examination is the key. Sophia, sorry, I interrupted you. Clinical examination and history taking, and in young people with intermediate uveitis, if the history, uh, if they have positive history of uh, like uh, the arms are aching or they become blurry, look for also MS. We have to exclude to exclude mm. MS in uh, young people. Yeah, yeah, that's true. MRI is uh, maybe, maybe MRI. Important. I mean, uh, if you feel safe uh, doing an MRI before you move on to treatment, it would be ben- beneficial. I, I, can I add one comment here? Yeah, uh, please we, uh, go we, ahead. Because I think it's important in, in my head. Uh, an intermediate uveitis in a female patient, of course, raises that concern. You, you worry about MS. But in, in my view, and that's something that, that we, it was controversial maybe for some colleagues, if the patient has no neurologic, no neurologic symptoms at all, is completely free, I do not use MRI as a screening test. I think it's, it's no, not a good idea. Yes, yeah. if, if they have some positive, you know, think that positive finding that, uh, I mean, guides you to possible MS. Yeah, you, you, I, I don't use it as a screening. I think it's important. If I'm going to use one of our strategies, which is anti-TNF therapy, yes. Ah, but okay. Now that's that's that. the point. I think that yeah. uh, you you are right, uh, Carlos, and this is a good controversy, but it's a great link to the second part of this podcast, which is on the management of uh, macular edema. And here we have a lot, lot of new developments on the treatment of macular edema. So I want to first ask this time, Sophia, when you have your patient coming with a macular edema, when you decide to treat and what you propose as a first-line therapy? So if I have patient in both eyes with macular edema and I do have a diagnosis which is not infectious, I will give him steroids. Okay. I will give him oral steroids and uh, then tapering, and then uh, if he has a systemic disease, I will move on to uh, another therapy like uh, immunosuppressants or ADTNF, depending on his diagnosis. If he only one eye has problems and uh, he's pseudophagic, I might want to give him a local therapy like uh, implants, uh, dexamethasone implants. Uh, topical steroids uh, do not treat macular edema. Uh, topical steroids like steroid drops and uh, anti-VGF injection only when we have neovascularization. But my first line would be uh, steroids. Okay. So now, uh, Carlos, that's really something we do usually when you have a bilateral uh, macular edema, you start with uh, with steroids. So do you agree with uh, with Sophia? And do you use pulses of uh, methylprednisolone or you go just for oral steroids? What what would you propose? Well, yeah, I, I think this, this distinction between unilateral and bilateral is, is helpful. And, and I think the distinction between an underlying systemic disease or the absence of systemic disease is also helpful because that will... Uh, guide you a bit more in which option to choose. Uh, I, I think the, uh, it's just one comment, uh, is the topical therapy. I just have only one situation when it can be valuable is when the edema is induced by anterior uveitis and you can treat the edema probably with topical therapy because you're controlling the front of the eye and then you end up controlling the back of the eye as well and different strategies of steroids and non-steroidals can be used in these cases. 
But when we go to uh, the treatment at the back, Baron, your, your question was again, can you just from the specific point you raised, sorry, I've got sidetracked here. I said that, are you pulsing your patients or not? Sure, yes. No, I'm, most of the times I don't. I think I will pulse patients in which I think there is a very significant uh, threat to vision immediately. So someone who has a very severe, like a batches presentation in which there is macular involvement, I might want to uh, control that very quickly. I do that. Most of the times, your oral therapy uh, is is going to be sufficient to uh, lead to to control. But Sophia's point is very important. Now, it, depending on the etiology, depending on the case, you already know from the very start that uh, steroids alone won't be sufficient. That you will need to have a second line agent to create this immunomodulatory scenario. And, and, and I think, of course, we all have different preferences. I I prefer uh, many times an anti-metabolite rather than a calcitonin inhibitor. And of course, we are all working towards moving biologics up higher and higher in our ladder so we can resort to biologics sooner rather than later. Because I think the results will be better if they're used earlier rather than selecting bad cases for them. Um, this would be on the systemic side. And we, we can certainly discuss yeah. The I, I think there, there are a few points I wanted to highlight. Uh, of course, uh, steroids are the, the mainstay of therapy. This is really something important. Uh, I, in, in our experience, when you pulse the patient, you can taper more rapidly uh, oral steroids afterwards. So it's sometimes, you know, you, want, you don't want to, to have uh, two weeks or three weeks more steroids, and this can be achieved with pulses. But again, these are serious cases where you, when they are side-threatening. The other point is topical treatment. I think that I, I had some good surprises. I think that while you are you are trying to find, you know, the way to treat the patient. If you start the topical treatment, you may have a good surprise. When you see the patient again, you see that macular edema is gone. Is it the natural history of the disease or is it really the topical steroids which are doing something? That's really something difficult to say. But as you said, for anterior uveitis cases, complicated with macular edema, it may be something interesting to consider. Now, going back to the treatment and all of us say that steroids are important. Now, what is the first line immunosuppressors you propose when you see that you have a level of high level of cortical dependence when you cannot go lower than 10 milligrams? Uh, Sophia, what would be your first choice of immunosuppressors? Now I intend to use more of a biologic like, like adalimumab, which is uh, um, licensed. licensed. And uh, if uh, for these cases, I would want to exclude multiple sclerosis. So if there's, I do I have a case of uh, intermediate uveitis, I would definitely want an MRI. And uh, I think it's a good viable option for, uh, and uh, it's very easily accepted for the patient. Uh, okay, because it's convenient. Carlos, are you also going uh, directly from steroids to anti-TNF, or you you try something else, uh, more conventional, such as uh, mycophenolate or methotrexate? No, I, I, I in a way, no. I, I, I have the system guiding me that I cannot go straight into biologics. I, I am forced into trying a conventional therapy first. And, and of course, my choice is with mycophenolate as my initial attempt. Uh, some patients, uh, methotrexate can be a good alternative, but mycophenolate is still my first option. Uh, and uh, failing that, then of course, we can step then into the biologics. We, we have to keep in mind that there's no therapy that treats all. E even yeah. biologics fail in, in a percentage yeah, of cases. Yeah. And then 
we, we are confronted with those more challenging cases. But uh, this would be the normal approach. We are not anymore exploring, and, and there's a trial now ongoing recruiting that is exploring maximizing conventional therapy to find out if by doing that, we can achieve a, a better outcome using that form of approach. Keeping in mind, Byron, very briefly, because biologics are not uh, widely available, expensive in many countries, it's not yeah, possible yeah, to use yeah, them. Yeah. And we have to try to find how can we advise people about the use of conventional therapy for best outcome. Yeah, yeah, we have the same approach in France. So I think that it's, uh, of course, if you can have access to anti-TNF drugs uh, easily and rapidly, you can do. But we are uh, following the same uh, process as in the in the UK. So now, we, you know, the, we are coming at the end of this uh, podcast in a few minutes. And I think it's important for our retina colleagues for us to discuss local therapy. So uh, for local therapy, we have, of course, uh, different approaches. I would like to ask you, Sophia, about uh, the local therapy with dexamethasone. How, how do you uh, propose that to your patients and what is your experience with that? Um, I do a number of injections. Uh, of course, yes, you have to be careful. Uh, you have to um, uh, alert the patient that uh, they're going to give him cataracts. So it's not my, it won't be my easy choice on a young phacic patient, uh, easier on a pseudophagic patient. Um, I would be more careful in a patient uh, having glaucoma, uh, but I think it's a safe alternative as a local therapy. People are happy. I, it tend some in, in some people it doesn't wear off in four months. It can last up to six months if also they are getting adjunctive therapy. Um, and uh, uh, I think it's uh, we're lucky to have this uh, drug also, this licensed drug also in our hands. Can you le- let us know your experience with the glaucoma and uh, hypertension? Uh, most of the ca- in most of, our, of the cases and also in the literature, glaucoma, it's not a glaucoma, it's hypertension and it's easily managed. I never had a case that, uh, uh, and I do a lot of um, steroid implants that had to go through a filtering surgery. Okay, good. So your experience is so far well with the transient, ocular... Transient, hypertension is transient. And uh, one thing that you can do is uh, test if the patient is steroid responder. So you can give him uh, steroid, topical steroid drops three or four times a day for a week and then check his pressure. And if his pressure goes super high, you don't want to give him steroid and steroid implant. You are going to find another uh, another option. Thank you. Um, Carlos, what is your experience with the dexamethasone implants? No, I think they, they certainly are a very useful tool. Uh, I think Sophia highlighted some of the concerns in terms of a young patient developing cataract, uh, patients developing high pressure. Uh, clearly, uh, the, the experience has been positive. I agree that most patients will be controlled by uh, topical therapy for pressure. I, I haven't been as lucky as Sophia. I have had patients going on to needing filtering procedure yeah. uh, as a consequence of repeated exposure. I'm not talking about a one-off injection. I'm talking about patients who are receiving regularly the, the, the medication. I think the important thing to share with our colleagues who are going to be using this is that if you have a patient who is using um, the, the medication, what, what I, I think important for the uveitis specialist is that we want to see control of uveitis that doesn't go up and down all the time. You, you want to see control that is stable. And if you only react to a, a, an event to inject at the time of that, 
you are allowing everything to go back to square one to then regain control again. And that is not an ideal scenario. You want to maintain. And, and there are different strategies of doing that. If you learn about from your patient, you know that an implant is going to expire in four months. If that's your best option or the only option you have, you can plan to inject before that implant is actually fully expired and you have edema again. But the other option is to consider longer acting devices that might allow that control in the longer term. And, and they, of course, carry a, a, a greater risk of cataract because they will produce a cataract anyway. But in the pressure side, is, it has been also very positive. Again, with patients, some patients require intervention. Uh, but they, they are useful tools. Keep in mind that the, the Luvian or UTIC, depending on where you are, is licensed for prevention of recurrence, not licensed for dealing with acute pictures. So if you can control something with the Ozerdex and use the Luvian or UTIC to follow on to that as a way of controlling disease, that's another strategy you can use. And finally, don't shy away from combining strategies. Systemic and local can be used. So one, one can reduce the burden of the other. So you may very well be able to top up with one end and prevent great changes in the systemic therapy so they can help each other. Thank you, Carlos. I think this brings us directly to the other point, which is the long-lasting uh, intraocular steroids. Uh, compared with the U.S., we don't have the high-dose uh, and acetonide with a lot of more cataract and uh, glaucoma risk uh, and glaucoma surgery, risk of glaucoma surgery. Uh, so that's really something important. I think you have a big experience in the U.K., in Germany, in uh, within Europe. It's starting to come in France, so it's a little bit uh, more difficult. We don't have your experience, but of course, it's important to know that we have these drugs available, these devices available, and it's just to uh, avoid relapses. It's not to control active uh, inflammatory macular edema, but to avoid relapses. Sophia, what is your experience in Greece with the fluorocinolone uh, acetonide implants, uh, Illuvian or... Uh... We don't have. We only have dexamethasone implant. Okay, so it should probably come. It should probably come uh, very fast because it's. Uh, it, I think Europe is uh, licensing uh, uh, for all countries, so that that will be probably the next step. Now, uh, Carlos, just a brief comment because you are uh, talking about uh, using different types of combo therapies, and as you uh, showed beautifully and elegantly, sometimes when you inject intravitreally, you are not treating the choroid as well as you treat the retina. So can you just comment on that? No, that, that's very important, Baran, because in the beginning we didn't know that. So we were assuming that a good level of intraocular steroid delivered by Ozordex or by Luvian would control conditions like birdshot very well. And what we have observed is that, yes, the retinal inflammatory, the retinal vascular component is very well controlled and responds very well. But when you look at the choroidal lesions, the hypofluorescent lesions in ICG, they remain untouched. So that is just giving us a very clear idea that uh, in patients with, with birdshot, for instance, which is our, our most clear example of a dual compartment pathology, choroid and retina, uh, you can control one of them very well. Uh, but I think the importance here is you will need systemic therapy to control the choroid, but that's going to be less than you would require if you needed to control everything with systemic therapy. So I think the local gives you an edge, gives you the control of a uh, the, 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 the bit of the disease that causes more symptoms and, of course, prevents long-term, the systemic prevents long-term damage from uncontrolled choroidal disease. But even the retisert, Baran, which is the high dose that you mentioned before, doesn't control choroidal disease. So it, it is really a matter of 
of penetration problem concentration widely in the choroid, which I don't think can be achieved by this local Man, this is This is very interesting. Thank you very much. So I think there are two topics we didn't uh, touch on, and that's uh, uh, Irving Gas uh, syndrome and uh, also the immune therapy-associated macular edema with patients with cancer treated with uh, immune therapy. And I think that local therapy is giving us a good option, if you agree, uh, in also in these two entities. Uh, and it allows the patient to be still treated with the uh, immune therapy and uh, anti-cancer therapies, uh, as well as treating them for their macular edema by uh, local therapy. So with this, uh, I think we, we are uh, coming to the end of this uh, podcast. Uh, I would like to ask you, Carlos, if you have one message, uh, if you want to deliver one message on uh, macular edema, uveitic macular edema to our retina specialist, please go ahead. Well, I, I think considering everything we said or the options we have, very carefully exclude an infectious disease as the cause of your problem because it will cause damage to the eye if you proceed with any of these strategies we just discussed now, especially local therapy. You cannot use local therapy in infection. Uh, and you know, just, just uh, use all the tools you have to monitor how you're responding, how your patient is uh, uh, dealing with that, how you're dealing with that problem. Sophia, just a short message. Uh, uveitis is a serious condition. It still cause, causes blindness. And so if you have a patient with uveitis and a uveitis macular edema, please refer to uveitis specialist or uh, please treat the patient. Yeah, I'm, I have nothing more to add. Maybe just to say that we are working in close collaboration with our internists, with our rheumatologists, because when we it comes to the use of biologic agents, it's important not only to be an ophthalmologist, but also to, uh, to master every tolerance issues you may have. So this is something I wanted uh, to add at the end. Uh, this is still a challenging issue, but it's really uh, an interesting uh, disease because uh, we have a lot of options for treating our patients and I think this makes the difference in 2022. Back to you, Jonathan. Thank you very much and hope to see you all during Uretna for a course on uveitis uh, organized by uh, Carlos Pavizio. So we, we give you this uh, ske- with the schedule you will have uh, in, the, in the near future and we hope to, to see you uh, all during the meeting in Hamburg. Jonathan? Well, one of the great things about this podcast, um, Baram, is that I get to see world leaders in retina discuss their favorite subject with such enthusiasm. So thank you so much to uh, Carlos and Sophia for sharing uh, your experience and insights. And uh, thank you for, so much for sharing, Baram. Remember, the next year Retina podcast will be out in a couple of weeks. If you'd like to comment, uh, critique, or indeed suggest your own topic, please do let us know, podcast at uretina.org. If you like this episode, please subscribe and rate. Let people know about Talking Uretina. Uh, For more digital content, including webinars, case clubs and podcasts, visit uretina.org. That is it for this episode. I'm Jonathan McRae. I'll see you next time.